0: Welcome to Panel Breakouts, mini-episodes between Unstable Molecules podcasts which take a quick peek at early Marvel comics and comic history. I'm Gary Hollingsby and I've been looking at the comics that fed into the Marvel style and launched its superhero universe in the early 1960s. This time I'm looking at a handful of war titles produced by Jack Kirby for Martin Goodman's company and tracing the influence that war had on the early Marvel superhero comics. War had slowly crept into comics during the later part of the 1930s, but definitely by 1940 when Dell published the first issue of War Comic, and certainly in 1941 with the publication of the first issue of Captain America Comics by Timely, and that's the famous one with Cap punching out Hitler. There was an explosion of War Comics once the US joined the Second World War, though Martin Goodman's company, Timely, didn't actually produce war titles unless Captain America comics and Young Allies are counted, both of which are really superhero books with a war setting. Early war comics focused on individual valour, close-up hand-hand combat, and characters moralising about the necessity of war. Many stories presented soldiers fighting overwhelming odds, and winning, or the wavering resolve of soldiers transforming into firm commitment to American ideals. It's actually the Korean War, which started in 1915 cost America over 50,000 soldiers' lives by the time Armistice was declared in July 1953, that boosted the number of war titles. One of the changes was that the, these comics were initially created by men who had been soldiers themselves, and they adopted a more brutal, realistic approach, which presented the hardships of conflict, particularly on individuals engaged in the fighting. Goodman's company published one of the first comics reacting to the Korean War called War Comics. Number one had a December 1950 cover. During the 1950s, Timely and Atlas went on to produce over 20 different war comics, and though lots of them were the same comic with a different name, such as Battle, Battle Action, Battle Brady, Battleground, Battlefield, Battlefront, Combat. Combat Kelly, Commando Adventures, Devil Dog Duggan, G.I. Tales, Marines at War, Marines in Action, Marines in Battle, Men in Action, Navy Action, Navy Combat, Navy Tales, Sailor Sweeney, Sergeant Barney Barker, War Action, War Adventures, War Comet, War Comics, Young Men on the Battlefield. It's generally agreed that Harvey Kurtzman's EC were the leaders in war comics of the early 50s with their titles Two-Fisted Tales and Frontline Comics. Kurtzman deliberately refused to glamorise warfare and often sympathised with soldiers breaking under the stress of combat, questioned the morality of war and the waste of life. And EC not only presented the horrors of combat, but satirised the danger of the international communist conspiracy. And it's no wonder that EC became one of the prime targets of the Senate investigations into comic books. Atlas's early war comics were similarly gritty and also suffered the same type of anti-communist attack. During the Korean War, for instance, a congressional committee declared Atlas's comics unpatriotic and allegedly they were prohibited from being sold in US military bases. Now, This might be the reason why Atlas introduced recurring heroic character stories. Combat Kelly or Combat Casey, Battle Brady, who was co-created by Joe Manili, Iron Mike McGraw, Devil Dog Duggan, Rock Murdoch, Private Tim O'Toole, who was another Manili character, and Torpedo Taylor, which is some great art by Don Heck. After Korea, sales of war comics did decline, which might account for the reason that Timely introduced its short lived superhero revival of Cat, Torch, and Namor in the first half of 1954. But war titles generally maintained enough readers to sustain until the end of the decade. There's certainly a clear difference between how hard hitting stories are at the start of the 1950s, pre comics code, and the toned down issues at the end of the decade. Jack Kirby was drafted in the Second World War in July 1943, did basic training at Camp Stewart in Georgia and was sent to England in August before being shipped to France. In interviews Kirby talked about the fighting he participated in, how he had been given scout duty and some of the horrors he witnessed. In the winter he suffered terrible frostbite to his lower legs and feet and was hospitalised for nearly a year and almost having his feet amputated. And he returned to the U.S. in January 1945. Kirby, as a consequence of his of, of being involved in combat, lost any sense of a romanticized view of war, and he saw it rather as a, a costly, diminishing affair. In 1954, along with Joe Simon, Kirby attempted to move from being comic book producers and creators to comic book publishers, and founded Mainline Comics. And according to Joe Simon in his autobiography, because they were ex- encouraged to accept uh, a brilliant printing credit deal from a salesman called George Doherty Jr. a Mainline launched four bi-monthly titles. Bullseye, which was a Western hero genre. In Love, which was a romance book um, with a unique selling point that it was it featured extra-length stories. Police Trap, which was a crime book was told from the point of view of the police rather than the criminal. And a war title called Foxhole, which was written and drawn only by veterans. There was another title advertised by Mainline called Night Fighter, which was possibly a wartime superhero book, but Mainline didn't last long enough to see it published. The timing of Mainline's launch couldn't have been worse. The anti-comics hysteria that had that had been generated by Frederick Wortham's seduction of the innocent, and the US Senate's subcommittee of the Committee on the Judiciary to Investigate Juvenile Delinquency used copies of Bullseye and Foxhole as exhibits. The subsequent Comics Codes, which insisted that comics had to avoid overt sex, excessive violence and bloodshed, meant that stories, including the gritty, realistic approach of Foxhole, had to be toned down. Sales collapsed. Kirby and Simon also got into legal trouble with Crestwood publications over previously used artwork and as a final blow Mainline's distributor, Leader News, who depended on EC, ended up in financial crisis itself and in 1956 Mainline became insolvent. Kirby found himself once again freelancing as an artist and in 1956 and 1957 did some work for Atlas. The first story he worked on was Minefield, a five-page story for Battlegrounds number 14, which had a November 1956 cover date. And in Minefield, Kirby tells the story of Private Jesse Morse, a clumsy teenage soldier who falls into a crater in no-man's land, becomes separated from the other soldiers and gets lost behind enemy lines. He sees the Germans planting mines before pretending to retreat and lure the Americans into the minefield. Private Morse moves the German markers, so they end up blowing themselves up. And when he returns to his battalion, he's praised by his superiors. I don't think this is Kirby's best artwork, but certainly this sort of mid-50s story is quite intense and dramatic. By 1959, Kirby had returned to work more or less exclusively at the Goodman Company. He'd famously said about the post-Atlas explosion, when I got back, they were practically taking the furniture out of the place and I had to stop them. I had to have a place to work. And he was assigned work by Stan Lee in different genres, such as romance, westerns, giant monsters, as well as the fourth, though diminishing, stable of the comics industry at the time, which was war. And among the work that Kirby produced for Stan Lee in the period before Marvel Comics, as we know it, was established with Fantastic Four number 1, nineteen sixty one were ten stories and ten and seven covers for battle in issues sixty four to seventy. And it's likely that Kirby plotted these stories as well as penciled them. Battle, issue sixty-four, which had a June nineteen fifty-nine cover date, has a cover by Kirby. And most of these final issues covers are inked by Chris Rule Um, and drawn by Kirby. It's a pretty dramatic cover. A soldier turns to witness the fighting between a group of battleships, jet fighters and land-based cannons. And he's supporting a bandaged soldier who seems barely aware of the explosions nearby. The reader is told that the action on Kamoi is torn from the headlines. The story is pretty dynamic and portrays the weapons of war and their effect on ordinary people. In it, an unnamed American reporter is caught up in the 1949 attempted Chinese invasion of the island of Kamoi off the Chinese mainland. Presumably, the device of a journalist is used the lens through which the events are described. It seems to me that the character is, is largely unnecessary. Kirby presents the Chinese military as villains who speak in the same bombastic tones as a, a character like Magneto or Doctor Doom a few years later. The Chinese fire shells on the island, followed by jets and torpedo boats. And they're challenged by Chiang Kai-shek's US-supported forces, who caused the communists to withdraw. At one point, the communist um, Chinese commander shouts, ''The enemy fought unfairly. Their weapons equaled our own.'' And it's all propagandistic stuff from Kirby, ending with a rallying, ''For men had learned that no spot was too small.'' or too remote to fall victim to tyranny so long as free men declared to fight back. Battle issue 65, which has an August 1959 cover date, has a a Kirby cover with a Soviet tank firing at soldiers in the foreground. The top right quarter of the cover is a cloud of red explosive smoke. In the bottom left, there's a soldier carrying a machine gun who faces us while pointing at the tank. The uniforms of the soldiers are generic and European rather than American. And just from the cover, it's difficult to tell which army they're fighting for. Inside Kirby continues the theme of the dominance of the machines of war in the opening story, find em, chase em, blast em. And the opening splash page caption tells us, Man can no longer face his enemy in combat during the supersonic era. The adversary will move too fast and strike too hard, and the time to retaliate may never come. But this problem has been solved by the use of super-sensitive super instruments, bloodhounds of deadly metal that will sight and track and destroy any future invasion attempt on our continental area. This is the guided missile story, the new dogs of war, leashed and waiting for a command we hope will never be issued. The story, which I am using as a loose term, is an account of the technological progress of warfare from World War II to the 50s. It starts with a wounded soldier using a bazooka to single-handedly destroy a tank, and continues through the rockets and missiles developed by the Germans, Russians and Americans, up to Polaris submarines and intercontinental ballistic missiles. It is essentially an opportunity for Kirby to draw lots of menacing rockets spewing flames which he does, of course, incredibly well. The second story in the issue, Ring of Steel, is much more interesting and visually one of my favourites of Kirby's battle run. It opens with a splash page looking down from the roof and seeing gunmen firing down on tanks in the streets below. Like Action on Gmoy, this is this story is an account of the Hungarian uprising against the Soviet Union in 1956. There's a dramatic page where the people of Budapest begin to suspect that the Russians are coming. The tanks appear, and in the final panel of the second page, there's a fantastic Kirby head, coloured bright red, screaming, RESIST THE TYRANTS! The next three pages are vigorous action, with ordinary people fighting against what one of the captions calls, hopeless odds. The ring of steel are the tanks as they close in on the resistance. And the final panel has a free Hungary radio presenter, continuing to broadcast until he's shot and the final panel has his hand lying lifeless on the desk next to the radio. Battle issue 66, which has an October 1959 cover date, um, shows a Kirby cover with a wounded American soldier hanging from a cable from a red helicopter while Chinese communists shoot at him. In the bottom right hand corner Is a Kirby head of a Chinese soldier turning, snarling at the reader. And the Kirby story is yet again an account of the development of the submarine, another machine of war. And Kirby gets to draw a lot of historical scenes, starting inexplicably with Vikings, who we're told didn't have submarines, through the 17th century designs of submarines to the Keokuk sub of the American Civil War and Kirby shows the German U-boat and the end of the era of the Wolfpack, with a final page presenting the atomic Polaris submarine and a panel of a periscope watching an American city. Quite ominous ending. Battle issue 67, which had a December 1959 cover date, has a cover that's definitely not inked by rule. Looks to me as if Kirby inked it pretty quickly himself, is a very simple image of an American soldier facing the reader with scream bubbles surrounding him, with a title of first-person stories inside, like I was a recruit under fire and I faced the enemy. Kirby's story inside is The Invincible Enemy, which shows how a small army outfit hold off an attack from Hitler's elite corps. The focus is on a young soldier who's just replaced um, a, an experienced soldier has been killed, and this is his baptism of fire into the war. There's a genuine sense that Kirby uses his experiences of close-up combat to tell this story. When the Germans attack, there's a heavy emphasis on the sounds of guns: pow, pow, brup, baba, 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 pow, pow, pow. And one of the captions tells us the sound sounds are a language even a replacement can understand. They tell him that the men in the buildings ahead cannot hold the advancing army. After freezing in terror, the young soldier sees the first sergeant shot, and then he joins in the fighting, destroying a tank. At the end, there's no congratulations for his heroics. The other soldier's check is okay, and simply comment that the Germans will be back. And The final panel shows the young soldier, now described as a combat soldier, waiting for the next attack, buoyed up by the belief that an American soldier is more than a match for Hitler's elite. Battle issue 68, which had a February 1960 cover date, shows um, a cover with American soldiers creeping up on Chinese Communist troops. In the foreground, the hand of an unseen American soldier is grabbing at an enemy, who is turning and looking at the reader with hatred. Your pulse will pound with excitement when we attack the commies, we're told. Inside Sitting Duck is a four-page story about an American um, reconnaissance pilot, Dan Denby, whose old plane gets caught up in a game of cat and mouse with two enemy jets. Outclassed and alone, he relies on his knowledge of the terrain to trick the jets into crashing into a mountain. It's not the best Kirby work. Um, the, the, the jets and the plane are not particularly well drawn. And there's an overall impression that Kirby rushed this. Perhaps he did. Much better in the issue is Kirby's Guard Duty, which is inked by Steve Ditko. It's a World War II story where a young, inexperienced soldier replaces, not a group of young, inexperienced soldiers replace veterans in a jungle camp. And a soldier called Lewis, who's the narrator, is assigned guard duty the first night. There's a page where Lewis is alone in the darkness, feeling agitated and fearful, which undoubtedly benefits from Ditko's inks, which had a, a shadowy sense of isolation and anxiety. Um, it's, he's all alone. Um, and it, the, the colouring also has this restricted purple and blue, which is um, really resonant. Lewis is attacked by Japanese by Japanese patrol and fights them off single-handed. And after being praised as being a hero, Lewis is on guard once again and encounters the veterans returning to the camp. They poke fun at him saying he'd freeze if he ever encountered the enemy. And Lewis smiles smugly and knowingly in the final panel. Battle issue 69, which had an April 1960 um, cover date, has a cover by Dick Ayres, which shows two soldiers struggling in hand hand combat. Kirby's story inside is um, Doom Under the Deep, which opens with a splash showing a US submarine blasting a Japanese oil tanker. The sub's crews have been shown films of prisoners taken by the Japanese, which has made them even more determined to fight. At that point, the sub's captain, David Marcus, learns that his brother has been captured by the Japanese. The sub then goes looking for vengeance and takes on two monster battleships. The first is quickly torpedoed, but the second drops depth charges which hit the sub. As the sub fills with water, the captain worries that his men will be captured and remains on board to torpedo, manually torpedo, the second Japanese ship. He escapes at the last minute and wakes up in an Australian hospital surrounded by his men. In the final panel, the captain reveals that he knew that the second Japanese battleship was the one that sunk his brother's ship. Battle issue 70, the final issue of the run, has a June 1960 cover date. Once again, it's a Kirby cover, and we see um, three Japanese soldiers pretending to surrender while American faces us pointing a gun at them. In the background are other American troops arriving behind um, the one pointing a gun. And one of them shouts, Watch it, Joe! They're trying the hidden machine gun trick! Kirby's first story in this issue is the beautifully drawn A Tank Knows No Mercy, which once again immensely benefits from Steve Ditko's inks. The whole first page splash is incredibly dramatic. A lone, unarmed American soldier stands directly in front of a huge German tank, which is blasting its guns. We see the crew of the tank. They're hunting American survivors, and we follow the tank as it moves through the landscape. An American soldier staggers towards an old farmhouse, where he's welcomed by a peasant family within. Later, the tank attacks, and the German crew decide to play cat and mouse with the soldier and the family. There's a great panel on the fourth page where two of the German crew look through a viewpoint with evil, maniacal twisted faces and they predict their victims will be paralyzed by fear and launch another shell. The soldier runs, allowing himself to be chased. He leads the tank to a cliff's edge where the tank falls over and he casually tosses a grenade after it to finish the crew off. And the final panel has the soldier returning to the peasant family and as the soldier and the peasant woman smile each other, the final caption tells the reader that the victims have won. There's another attractive story by Kirby in this final issue called The Thick of Battle which is inked by Joe Sinnott. Once again there's a terrific splash showing North Korean communists blazing machine guns. The Com- Koreans are repelled by American troops but a communication line is, is severed by a shell. We then follow a quiet modest GI who knows his, knows his job called linesman Ben Clark who's sent to repair the communication wire. At the field HQ, the senior staff explain how important communications will be. And Clark is sent out onto the battlefield. There are a series of incredibly dynamic panels where shells fall around the soldier. The panels are simply colored yellow and red, and the soldier is surrounded by onomatopoeic sound effects. It's powerfully visual. As he's finishing his repairs, he's attacked by Korean troops and shot. They're taken out by a shell and the soldier is finally rescued. And the the ending panels of the story show the soldier, now decorated for bravery, entering a diner back in the US. Another customer makes a disparaging remark about him not being a real soldier. And a sergeant who's sitting nearby punches the customer and tells him that he's got something to learn about the men who keep America free. In May 1963, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos was launched within the Marvel Superior Universe. Kirby drew the first seven issues and all the covers up until issue 25. Howling Commandos, which I'll look at later in another episode, draws on elements not only from Kirby's wartime experiences, but in the action-packed storytelling, which we see in his work in Battle. What Kirby brought to battle was, as far as the comics code would allow, a grittier, more realistic attitude. Kirby's skill is in involving the reader in the events, giving an impression that the reader is a participant in the fighting close up. As a genre, war itself bubbled away in the background of the 60s Marvel Universe in the form of the threat of Russian and Chinese communism on America. The role of the soldier hero who's confronted by impossible odds, but manages to keep his resolve in order to win the day, is seen in many, many of the characters of of the Marvel heroes. And the early comradely interactions of teams like the Avengers and the Howling Commandos is drawn absolutely directly from the wartime army experiences that Kirby had. Battle itself was the last of the Atlas War comics, and was cancelled in February 1961 for a low-key teen humour comic aimed at girls called My Friend Irma. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this has been Panel Breakouts, a mini-podcast about the comics that lay the foundations for the early Marvel superhero universe.